Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into Romans chapter 13 together. Dear God, we pray to you as uh, your children, as we just sang about, knowing that you've set us free from the fear of sin and death. And God, uh, we know that your word tells us, the Apostle James writes this, that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. That when we just hear the word, God, we're deceiving ourselves. And we're like those who look at a mirror and then walk away and we forget what it is we've seen. And you say that when we look into your scriptures, when we look into your law, what you call the perfect law of liberty, that we are to be those who put into action what we read there, what we see there. We would be doers who act and in doing that we'll be blessed. Would you make us people that are like that, God? Would you make us people who want to follow you more closely, who want to be doers of all the things that you lay down in your law? Because God, that's our, that's our heart's longing and we need your Holy Spirit to work that in us. So would you please do that in us? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles open, Romans chapter 14, you remember last week, we talked about Romans chapter 14, really the first half of that section. And then Paul begins in verse 13 with a therefore. He's kind of adding a conclusion. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And that short part of that verse really does encapsulate what Paul was addressing last week that we looked at in our text last week. And you remember, at the church in Rome, there was a problem. There was a real problem. There was this dispute, this quarrel going on in the church in Rome between two factions at loggerheads with one another. And the source of this dispute was opinions about ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. These were opinions about dietary regulations. They were opinions about feast days and festivals. And one faction in this church, who Paul calls the weak in faith... These are people who were coming out of cultural and religious Judaism, and they had these firm, deeply held, sincere, conscientious opinions about eating certain things and not eating certain things, about observing various Old Testament holy days and not observing uh, holy days. And essentially, they were saying, hey, in order to follow Jesus properly, now that Jesus has come, we don't just do away with those things. But we want to sincerely follow Jesus by following these ceremonial laws. And you'll remember, the reason that Paul called these people weak in faith was because what Paul noticed in them was that there was this remnant, this remnant of a law-based spirituality that still hung on to them and clinged on to them, even though they had freedom in Jesus, even though Jesus had set them free from the ceremonial laws, they still had these pangs of conscience that, oh no, we should, we should still do those things. They're still really important. And so you have these weak Jesus followers on the one hand, and they're disputing with the strong, who Paul calls the strong. And they're strong because they're saying like, hey, you know what? We're free. We can eat any meat that we want. We don't have to observe these holy days anymore. We don't have to be worried about dietary concerns because all of those laws in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And now that he has come, we live in his freedom from those kind of regulations. So they're saying, hey, what was once a matter of law in the Old Testament, do this, is now a matter of opinion, meaning we're no better off if we do them 
and we're no worse off if we don't do them. They are opinions. And both sides in this dispute, we looked at this closely last week, both sides in this dispute have this posture of judgmentalism and a posture of self-exalting pride toward the other people. And just as a side note, that problem that they were facing now is something that people even observe in Christians today. The Barna Research Group recently came out with a study that kind of corroborated what Paul sees in the Roman church now. He noted that perceptions of Christians among unchurched and de-churched Americans, the first two characteristics that unchurched and de-churched people see in Christians are first that they are judgmental, that they consciously or not, are quick to judge others, even other Christians, for not holding the same beliefs that they do. The second view that they held was that Christians are hypocritical. 85% said Christians are hypocritical. They say they believe certain things, but in practice, they care about other things. And as is the case with any quarrel, any dispute about opinions and secondary issues, both sides Paul is writing to here The weak and the strong have lost focus on what is primary and it has become overshadowed by opinions that are actually secondary. And last week, right, we saw that was not just a problem then. We face this same problem today. We face that same problem now. There are a litany of things that we take that are secondary issues and they begin to overshadow primary issues. We talked about schooling Right? Some people will say, if you are a Christian, you will homeschool your kids. There is no other way about it. Other people will say, no, I think that we can send them to Christian private school. And then there's a third category of people. They're saying, oh, absolutely not. Jesus is a missional God. He he wants to reach people, so we send our kids to public school. Who's right? I don't know, because it's an opinion. Then there are other things like disciplining our children. You must discipline your children this way or you must discipline your children that way. There are Christian holidays that people say we have to observe like Lent and Palm Sunday and a whole host of others that aren't mentioned anywhere in the Bible. There's the issue of can Christians date or should they court? Which one's right? Should Christians use tobacco? Should Christians use alcohol? That's one that we dug into. And, you know, I was recently talking with a friend. He just got hired on at a church, and this church has it in their bylaws that if you're on staff at this church, you cannot use alcohol in a public setting. And my thought that first came to mind was, that's interesting. I don't know if Jesus could have served at your church. (laughs) And in our zeal, right, to make real serious distinctions about this is what makes us Christian, we can oftentimes exclude Jesus from our own fellowship. That should make us pause a little bit there. But this list continues. We, we make secondary things like political ideology, masking, vaccinations, up to the level of primary issues. And the church has always faced this. You rewind the clock 60 years ago, 70 years ago, 80 years ago. The opinions were slightly different, but this was still a problem. The, the opinions then were you cannot watch R-rated movies as a Christian. You cannot dance as a Christian. You cannot play cards as a Christian. You cannot wear makeup as a woman and be a Christian 
or a man for that matter, I guess. Women cannot wear pants in church. Women should not have an interest in fashion. Women cannot read magazines. And people cannot listen to rock music. And many people said then, as they do now, if you are a true follower of Jesus, you will never engage in these things. In fact, there was a slogan, real Christians never dance, drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. It poses a problem for me. I listen to Leonard Skinner and drink Miller Lite while working on my truck on Saturdays. So <laughs> you remember, this is what Paul said in verse 1 in Romans chapter 14. He made it very clear. Paul made it very clear that these things are opinions. He says there, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. We have to have that category of opinions. Because the Bible does not speak on them explicitly or clearly. The Bible never explicitly forbids or commends them. That makes them matters of opinion. And in Jesus, therefore, we have great freedom. We have great freedom to disagree with one another. We have great freedom to allow the primary things to be the primary things and let the secondary things be secondary things. And, you know, what makes this so interesting is if you reflect on Christian culture today, one thing that you might notice is we have this priority set upside down where we can actually become very compromising and we can be very patient to people when it comes to primary issues. So when it comes to things like the Bible being the literal word of God, we're usually willing to say, oh, well, okay, you don't have to really think that it's the literal word of God. Or when it comes to the existence of heaven and hell, We might have a little bit more compromise for people in that. Or when it comes to Jesus being the only way to eternal life through his sacrificial death, we might be willing to compromise on that. Or when it comes to issues of morality, especially issues of sexuality and gender and greed, handfuls of Christians are willing to be very charitable and very compromising on those issues. But when it comes to opinions, whether it comes to voting for candidate A over politician B, Or when it comes to what action should we take on a social justice issue? Or when it comes to which movies we can and cannot watch? Or our views on immigration and foreign wars? Or should Christians shop at department stores or coffee shops that promote cultural ideas we do not like? When it comes to those kind of issues, we become vigorously uncompromising. And we have it upside down. See, Even though the Bible doesn't speak clearly or definitively on issues like this, we have a tendency to make these secondary issues overshadow primary ones. So Paul reminds us, hey, followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. They're gray areas. They're opinions. We do not have to have a judgmental attitude toward a person just because they voted for somebody different than us. Jesus has freed us. He's accepted us into his family. And so we can stop saying, in order to be a true follower of Jesus, you have to blank. Instead, Paul goes on to unpack here. Here's the solution. Not only welcome each other, not only don't pass judgment on one another, But he's going to tell us this morning, here's how you navigate quarrels and disputes over secondary issues, opinions, and cultural preferences. Or to put it another way, what Paul's really telling us in the the remainder of this passage is, now that you have freedom in Jesus, how are you going to use that freedom? 
How are you going to live that out in your day-to-day life? And what Paul refers to repeatedly throughout this is he says, as followers of Jesus, we use our freedom to serve. That's how we're to use our freedom. We use our freedom to serve. And you see that right out the gate in verse 13. After he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. He goes on and says, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And what Paul is doing here is he's using a term that's very common in the Old Testament. And this is the idea of a stumbling block or a stumbling stone. The first time you see it in the Old Testament is in Leviticus chapter 18. And there, the author is using it very literally. He's saying, here's how you love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's writing about in Leviticus 18. And he says there, (coughs) in order to do this, sorry, I had a cold this week. So my uh, throat is sticking. Uh, it's, It's very uncomfortable. But what he says in Leviticus 19 that you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. So to literally put a stumbling block before somebody would have been to see a blind person walking along and then to put a rock in their way so they stumbled and tripped over it. That's not a way to love your neighbor as yourself, just in case you were wondering. That literal use gets picked up as a metaphor later on in the Bible. The psalmist puts it this way. The psalmist says, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. See, to love God and to pursue God is to walk in the way of his law, to walk in the way of the Bible, to walk in the way of the scriptures. And the Bible says to stumble, therefore, is to go in the opposite direction, to sin against God and to fall into sin. Isaiah the prophet, I think he uses this the best. So Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah is getting a message from God because he's a prophet. He's going to go and tell Israel about this. And Isaiah, writing in the first person, writes, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. See, in Israel during that time, there were those who hated God. Even though they were called God's people, they hated God in Israel. And that hatred of God became the very thing that God was going to place before them so that they would stumble over it. And it would ultimately lead to their downfall and destruction. So Paul's using this stumbling block idea to say this. As followers of Jesus, who are free in Jesus in matters of opinion... Do not put a stumbling block, something in the way of another person that might cause them to fall into sin in order to fall off the path of following God. And this is important. Paul is saying, hey, you have freedom. You have freedom in Jesus, but 
As you exercise that freedom, you should be determined to not do something that might cause another follower of Jesus to sin. We are to use our freedom in wisdom. We are to use it to serve one another in following Jesus. And this was not a problem specific to Rome. This was a problem throughout the early church. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth something very similar, and he puts a very snappy phrase to it. He says, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. All those old laws that used to hinder you, they're no longer a bondage to you. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So see, followers of Jesus, in matters of opinion, are you free to enjoy alcohol, for instance, or tobacco? Or are you free to enjoy the benefits of money? Are you free to use all of these good gifts of God? Yes. But there come times when it's not always helpful to indulge in the things that you're free to use. In fact, sometimes just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Now, I have to remind my kids of that all the time. Paul had to remind it to the church in Rome as well. Remember, remember what's going on in Rome. right? You have these people who are considered strong. And they're saying, we don't have to follow the Passover anymore. The Passover was this festival where people would get rid of all the yeast, all the leaven in their house to signify sin being removed from their households. They would take the first day of this feast and the last day of this feast and they would treat it solemnly and with reverence, meaning they would not do any work on it. And now you have these strong people saying, we don't have to observe the Passover anymore. So they want to have their weak brothers and their weak sisters, these weak followers of Jesus over to their house. Would it be wise for them to have eight loaves of bread and four pastries and a stack of blueberry pancakes there to meet them? Probably not. What that would be doing is doing something lawful, but something that is profoundly unhelpful. And you can imagine a strong person, right? A strong person would have said, yeah, but Jesus said it's okay. We're free to enjoy all these things. Remember, Jesus even said to his disciples, he approached them and said, he said that, what is outside of a person does not defile a person. He, he went and told his disciples, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. Paul would say, yeah, that's true. That's profoundly true. But it's also profoundly unhelpful given the situation that you guys are in. Paul says, verse 14, he says, I, I know it. I know it, strong people. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. I know it, you know it, Jesus knows it. But he continues, it is unclean for anyone who thinks that it is unclean. And what Paul is getting at here, he kind of unpacks further in verse 23, where he says, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Well, what Paul's getting at here is a principle of the Bible that a sin is not merely an action. It's not merely doing something that God forbids. God also takes into consideration the motive that we do something in. So, for instance, if you were to give money to a worthy cause, any cause that you can think of, 
But if the reason that you give to that cause is so that others will look at you and say, look how great of a person Daniel is. Look how much Daniel cares about that issue. Look how much Daniel loves those people who are hurting and who are in trouble. Even though the action is good, because my motive is off, the Bible calls that sin because it does not proceed from faith. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Remember a couple years back, there was a famous beer company. And in order to, you know, advertise and show the good that they were doing, they uh, put out a commercial where they have a guy who wakes up late in the middle of the night and he goes into work because he receives a phone call and they're changing these cans, these beer cans, into water cans. And they're sending these water cans out to different places in the United States that are suffering from forest fires and drought and, and all these other things. And, you know, I'm a little bit cynical. So I see that and I think, what's the motive behind that? Is it to raise the bottom line so that others will think that this company is really virtuous? If that's the case, then what the Bible says is what you've taken is a good action and you've tainted it with a poor motive. Now, I'm sure... That, you know, in those things, that those people had good intentions. But the Bible says, whatever does not proceed from faith and is not motivated by faith is sin. So you have these weak people in Rome. And they're not fully convinced, I can eat this thing and I can't eat that thing. They're not fully convinced of that. And so for them, if they were to eat out of any other obligation other than I want to sincerely obey and honor Jesus Christ, what Paul is saying, hey, for them to eat, it is sin. You could probably think of uh, a number of examples for this. I think of a college person who is just coming to the Lord and, you know, they've had some struggles with alcohol in the past and they might think, you know what, for me to engage in drinking alcohol, that, that would not be honoring to the Lord. And if you have another person who's another sincere follower of Jesus and they're saying, no, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you have freedom in Jesus, you can drink and everything's going to be fine. If that person gives in out of anything other than a heart of faith, then what's happened is that person is no longer serving Jesus, they're no longer serving God. What they're doing instead is they're serving popularity. They're serving their own image. They're serving going along with the crowd. And what that's doing is they have an occasion for stumbling that otherwise wouldn't have been there. So Paul's writing to the strong in Rome. He says, hey, strong people, serve the weak. Serve those who are weak in faith, even though you're right. In this, you can be really wrong. All things are helpful, yes. You are free, but not all things are helpful. So when you use your freedom, do not use it as a way of putting a stumbling block for another person. And now Paul's quite blunt about this. He says, when we do that, when we misabuse our freedom, verse 15, after saying, you know, it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean, Paul says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He's saying, hey, listen, Listen, those of you who are strong, don't you realize what you're doing? You have freedom. You have liberties. You have rights. All of these good things in Jesus. And even though you're right, biblically speaking, you have completely sacrificed love on the altar of truth. 
You've completely sacrificed loving your neighbor for being right over and against your neighbor. Anybody with uh, spouses here ever get in a fight with your, with your spouse? I never have. I've only had one fight, actually, in my entire marriage. And in that fight, I was right. I'm convinced of that. <laughs> and, you know, what the fight is over, actually, this is, this is a common thread in our family. What our, we usually fight over is our dishwasher. And in the dishwasher, this is the proper way to load your dishes. You always have forks in one tray, spoons in another tray, ladles in one tray, and then spatulas in the other tray. You do not mix them, okay? And I'm convinced that is right. Anybody agree with me? All the rest of you are wrong, just so we're clear about that. Now, I can get very adamant and passionate about these things because I'm convinced, Hannah, you do not know what's right. Get in line. And what I've done when I've done that is I have sacrificed the greater war for one fight, right? I've completely lost perspective on what the bigger picture is, which is loving my wife, no matter what her dishwashing habits are. And I've sacrificed that on the altar of me being right in this fight at this moment. Paul's saying, in certain things, we are free, but if it, if it grieves another follower of Jesus, then we're no longer serving, we're no longer walking in love, and we're destroying the one for whom Christ died. Christ died for the weaker brother. He died for us. Shouldn't we also take that into consideration? You know, there's this, this scale, almost, as if Paul is putting in front of us. He's saying, hey, take what Jesus has done for you on one hand. Right? Does Jesus love you? Does he love the weak person in faith enough to die for them? And are you not going to give up some of your freedom in grieving his or her conscience? Or he takes the scale again and he says, Jesus voluntarily sacrificed himself for that weaker person's well-being. Are you going to assert your freedom to their harm? Jesus voluntarily died to save that weaker person from their sin. And are you going to be indifferent about possibly destroying them? See, if Jesus so values that person enough to voluntarily die for them, shouldn't we voluntarily limit some of our freedoms? Shouldn't we voluntarily give up some of the things that in the end of the day are secondary issues? Because at the end of the day, that's, that's what Paul says in verse 17. Verse 17, he makes it clear. Again, he writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, it's ironic. Because if you think back to what the problem was in Rome and what the problem we face in churches a lot of times, is it's the strong saying to the weak, you just don't get it. It's about Grace, Jesus has freed us from these things. All those things that you're concerned about are secondary issues. You're putting the emphasis on the wrong thing in your faith. But Paul says, oh yeah, and you, strong person, you're doing the exact same thing. You're so insistent on your freedoms in secondary things, you lose complete sight of what is important, namely the kingdom of God, which is marked by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You want your freedoms, which are like individual trees, and you miss the entire forest. So it's not just the weak who are at fault. 
Yes, the weak have pangs of consciousness and they need to grow in their faith and understand the freedom that they have in Jesus. But it's no better for a strong person to say, goodness gracious, won't you figure it out? Won't you read the Bible more? Won't you understand the grace of God more? Both of those issues are missing the forest for the trees. They're missing the primary things in preference for the secondary things. And once more, there's just a scale of importance. You've been given an eternal kingdom, an eternal kingdom with God. And are you going to insist on your freedoms now, right now, to gratify your desires and freedoms now, right this minute? Jesus gave us his free gift of righteousness, his perfections. And are we not going to give another follower respect for his conscientious objections and conscientious opinions? Did Jesus love us enough to give us the peace and joy found in his spirit and we're not going to be concerned about grieving another person, failing to love and serve them? And to close out this passage, Paul says, hey, in order to serve one another, not to be divided over these things, but in order to serve one another, it's not that we just avoid putting a stumbling block in front of them. We need to positively do something else. We need to build one another up. And you see that in two places. The first is in Romans 14, verse 19. Paul says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. And then, in another place, Romans 15, verse 2, he said, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So you hear what Paul is saying, build one another up. Literally the word used in both of those is a Greek word that means building up a structure, building up a household. Paul is saying, instead of pursuing what could lead to division and to the destruction of the word of God or work of God, pursue peace and build one another up as God's household, as God's family. After all, Paul goes on to say, this was Jesus' plan from the very beginning. To take people who are extremely diverse and bring them together into one family and into one household. He says very clearly, beginning in verse 8, chapter 15, For I tell you that Christ became a servant. He became a servant to the circumcised, that is, those who were Jewish, those who were weaker in faith. And he did this to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Jesus became the servant who died for the Jew and also died for the Gentile. Also, this one body, this one household, this one family would praise God eternally as one people. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it's said in scripture, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. That's Jesus. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. See, We use our freedoms to serve because Jesus became a servant to us. And as our servant, he has destroyed his own body in order to build us up 
as his household, his family. That was his plan, to take Jew, to take Gentile, to take weak, to take strong, to take Republican and Democrat, black and white, rich and poor, conservative, liberal, vaxxer and anti-vaxxer, Whatever cultural background or secondary opinion that they hold, Jesus died to build us up together as one people, as people who have freedom in him and as people who use that freedom to serve. In Jesus, we are free to serve. Last week, I mentioned this, but it bears repeating. What is more important in our culture? Does our culture need to see a church that is right about everything, every cultural issue, every political issue, every social, economic issue. Do they need to see a church that is right on all these opinions that so commonly divide us? Or do they need to see a church, a church of people from differing opinions, different political parties, different races, different economic statuses, serving one another in love, resolving never to put a stumbling block in front of one another, resolving always to build one another up in voluntary, sacrificial love for one another. Martin Luther, I said this last week as well, but I only gave half the quote because the rest of the quote is very powerful. Martin Luther said, a Christian man is most free, subject to none, but a Christian man is also a most dutiful servant, subject to all. In Jesus, we're, we're free. We are free from the bondage of death because of Jesus' death. We are free from slavery to sin because of Jesus' resurrection. We are free from the presence of evil when Jesus brings his kingdom in full and we will live with him forever. And we can live into that freedom now. And as people who are free, we should view that freedom as an opportunity to serve as most dutiful servants letting the primary things be primary, the secondary things be secondary in order to do what Jesus does for us. Allow ourselves to die and be destroyed in order to build up what Jesus is building up, namely a kingdom filled with people gathered from all tribes, tongues, nations, and people's groups in one body with him singing his praise forever. As a Christian person, we are most free, subject to none, but we are a most dutiful servant, subject to all. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good to us to have sent your son to be destroyed for our sake, to be crucified, to die, to be buried, to be humiliated, mocked, and scorned, all for the sake of bringing people like us who have so many blind spots, so many pet projects that we insist are the most important thing. God, I confess I've done that. And God, as your great love shows us in Jesus, he was willing to become a servant in order to build us up as one body. Help us, God, have that focus. Help us by your spirit to view the kingdom of God and the death of Jesus on the cross as that which is primary and give us the strength to do that because God, we're helpless if you don't. We need your grace to do this. We can only do it through Christ at work in us. Would you make us those people? We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.